Hey, have y'all had to ever learn anything the hard way? Man, me too. Why don't they offer any classes in college on being an adult? (laughs) If they do, I miss that one. Or why aren't there any good books on being a selfless husband? Oh, not as many of you are down for that one. (laughs) Or a patient dad, that'd be good. If I could take an online course, 12 weeks, $99, and when I'm done, you're the perfect dad. Man, that'd be awesome. But you know, I've, I've learned that most of life's important lessons aren't learned in a classroom or from a book, are they? They come through difficult circumstances, challenging life experiences that end up teaching us what we need to know the hard way. And uh, y'all saw it in this passage. The disciples had to learn some things the hard way. They should have known everything about Jesus by this point. Should have seen his miracles. They should have seen his authority. And they should have trusted. But so they had to go through this storm so they could really learn what it meant that Jesus was powerful and in control. Yeah, what's up, Miss Jenny? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody with her on that? Yeah, these are life's lessons that you can really only learn the hard way. And I think there's probably, maybe, maybe all of us can really identify with what these disciples experienced in that storm. That we've been through them. We, we know all about them. Uh, they're not foreign to us. Maybe never been to the Sea of Galilee, but man, you've been through some scary stuff in your days. And I think if we're careful this morning and pay attention to what God wants us to say, in the same way that he taught the disciples to trust him, he wants to teach us to trust. In fact, this morning I want you to see that you can trust Jesus through life storms because he's present with you in them and he's powerful over them. Now, I know a lot of y'all are guests today and we're so glad you're here. Man, it's beautiful to hear all your voices. But you haven't been with us. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, started last fall. We've been in Mark 4 for several weeks. And uh, so today we are wrapping up this chapter. And Beginning in verse 1, Mark tells us that Jesus was uh, teaching the crowds and there were so many people gathered around him that he had to get in a boat and go out on the Sea of Galilee and speak to the people who remained on shore. And the teaching he gave them was just incredible. I mean, some of the most beloved parables in all the Gospels are in Mark chapter 4. Jesus talked about the parable of the soils. Are you, are you good soil? Are you rocky soil, thorny soil? soil. Talked about the parable of the mustard seed, that the kingdom of God starts small but grows beyond the wildest expectations. And after a day full of teaching, Jesus there in the boat looks at his guys around him and he says, hey, let's go across to the other side. Now, we don't get the inner motivations of Jesus' heart. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, why he wanted to go across the other side. But there are a few things that are interesting to me. First off, uh, up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has restricted his ministry to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. It's an area called Gal- uh, Galilee, and the main town that he's in is Capernaum, and, and Mark says that he goes and teaches in the villages around Capernaum as well. But the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is predominantly Gentiles, and there are ten cities, they call it the, the Decapolis. We're going to see it kind of in detail next week. And So I don't know, maybe Jesus is starting to think about maybe expanding his ministry to people who haven't heard it yet. But in either case, 
after the end of a long day, he tells his guys, let's go across to the other side. And I imagine those men, 12 close disciples, personally selected, hand-chosen, called by name to be with Jesus and learn from him so that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. They must be basking in the glow of a great day. That's what I talk to my mom and dad about on Sunday afternoons. My dad's a pastor, and so we typically check in with each other. (laughs) We say, hey, how was your day? And we always say, it was a great day. Man, I cannot wait to tell my mom and dad about the day we're having together here. This is just awesome. My heart is full. Man, what a great day. I got to think that Peter, James and John, Andrew, they're rowing their master across the sea, just thinking about the great day of ministry they've just had. They're, They're thinking about, man, all the wonderful teachings Jesus has just poured into us. My heart is full. God is at work. The kingdom is coming. And boom, out of nowhere, a storm arose. I love the way Mark tells it. I mean, he says, there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. In a moment, the disciples go from perfectly calm and at peace, enjoying the afterglow of a rich day in the presence of God to completely panicked and overwhelmed. They're losing their minds. I mean, you got to think these men were experienced sailors. Several of them were professional fishermen on the very lake before they'd left everything to follow Christ. So they knew a storm when they saw one. You know, they could think about all the times they'd been caught out on the lake and God had brought them through. But this one was different. This was a fierce storm. And the waves were already crashing and filling up the boat. And they were going crazy. What we know of the Sea of Galilee is it's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, and surrounded on most every side by hills and mountains. And those hills and mountains have a way of channeling and intensifying the prevailing winds so that even today, when a storm starts out on the Sea of Galilee, it can get crazy in a hurry. And that's apparently what happened. They're out here on the lake, minding their own business, and boom, out of nowhere, a fierce storm arose. Make matters worse, the boat they were in wasn't well suited to stormy seas. Uh, They found one of these boats in 1986, had been buried in the mud in the Sea of Galilee, and they used carbon dating to figure out it's maybe like from the second century BC to the first century AD. So pretty typical of the types of boat that Jesus and his guys were on at this moment. They're 26 feet long, about 13 feet wide, and four and a half feet deep. They're incredibly shallow and made for hauling fish up over the top. Because of that, they were perfectly suited to being out on the still waters the early evening, but not very good when the waves start crashing over the top. And that's exactly what happened with these guys. The boat starts filling up, they start losing their head, and they start, you got to think, bailing water and trying to get out. It is the proverbial perfect storm. All the factors come together and catch them at their worst possible time. And I'm not an experienced sailor, but I did live through something really similar to this several years ago. When I was serving in the woodlands, my pastor had a boat on Lake Conroe in a marina. 
And Aaron and I didn't have kids yet, and I was just a youth pastor, so my schedule was a lot more open than it is now. And so when I got there, my pastor gave me a set of keys to the marina and to the boat, and he said, use the boat whenever you want. And so I kind of got into the habit of going up maybe once a month, twice a month, and going out on the little boat. It was a little 14, 16-foot aluminum crappie boat. So it had a seat in the front and a seat in the back, a little 25-horsepower motor. And I'd go out, there was a stick steer, and so you moved it left and right by pushing forward and pulling back. And so I'd go out and have fun, stay close to the marina and everything. But I was discipling a guy in our church who was an avid fisherman and had grown up just off of the lake. And so he convinced me, hey, let's go one afternoon and I'll show you my favorite crappie spots. And so that's what we did. We got out there early, uh, kind of like late morning, and started fishing, went to the north side of the lake where there's lots of like trees in the water and stuff, like perfect conditions for crappie, right? And so we're hanging out and not really having a lot of success with fish, but having a good time. And man, you know what I'm talking about when like you told your wife you're going to be back at a certain time, but you're out there and having fun. And so like you just conveniently lose track of time. And that's what we did. We lost track of time. And by the end of the day, it's starting to deteriorate conditions wise. Okay. Clouds are starting to roll in. The wind is starting to blow. And we were a solid 45 minutes or an hour from the marina at the south end of the lake. So, you know, being the accomplished boater that I am, I said, hey, no problem. I got this. No, that's not exactly it. I think under ideal conditions, I'm a passable boater. I stick to my lane and go my speed and let the other guys do their thing. I'm telling you, in waves that felt like every time we went up and down, the water was going to sink the boat, uh, I started praying really hard and uh, started thinking about this guy that I've been discipling and like he's about to abandon his faith and like leave the church and all this stuff and my boss is going to kill me and never let me use the boat again and the wind is pelting my face and the rain is driving and you know the storm didn't kill me, my pastor let me live, my wife was going to kill me. You know, that's, I just knew it. <laughs> And so we made it back, and you know, here I am today getting to preach and tell you this story. And the reason I wanted to mention it is because that's probably the scariest experience I've ever had on the water. Right? I, don't, I don't think I ever want to be in charge of a boat again. But, you know, Aaron and I have since lived through some stuff that makes that afternoon look like a piece of cake. You know, I'd do it a thousand times over, and I'd have to walk through some of the things I've walked through in the past 10 years. I've personally gone through seasons of doubt about my vocation and what God has called me to. I've gone through a period of depression. I've, I've lost mentors to cancer. I've had friends that my relationships just have just fallen apart for reasons I'm responsible for, and then, you know, can't quite put a finger on it, but things just change. And because of that, I've, man, I've, I know what it means to live through a storm. And I'm sure you're the same way. You don't have to think very long or hard about the scariest stuff you've been through. Because there's no denying it that you're going to face storms in life. And the, the preachers always say you're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or heading into a storm. And uh, I, I've certainly discovered that that's the case. You know, even these little kids who God has them in the perfect place, doesn't he? They're loved by a family and by a church and their life is wide open to them. But man, high school years are hard. Disappointment, 
Don't get into college you want. Don't get the job. Your first heartache and heartbreak. Then you get to be an adult, and it's basically the same, but it costs more money, and, you know, and, and it's scary. Life is hard. And then you come to a story like this, and God just kind of reminds you that even the Christian life isn't always clear skies and smooth sailing, but you can trust Jesus through whatever storms you face because you can be confident he's with you in them. Right, that's what happens first. Verse 38, I love it. Just the straight simplicity. The gospel writers aren't you know, grinding any axes or making any agendas. They're just telling things as it is. And they said that while the disciples were losing their head, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the pillow. I love that. It's so vivid. Maybe y'all got some kids like that. They can sleep through anything. My kids are up at six every morning. So whatever you're feeding them, let me know. Uh, but Jesus was sound asleep, sound asleep. James Edwards, commentator, says that this is ironically the only time in the gospel where we see Jesus asleep. And he slept every day, but this is the only time that Mark thinks it's important to tell us that, hey, by the way, Jesus was asleep. And I love it because I think that means while the disciples are losing their heads, Jesus knows something that leads him to rest his he just lays back and rests. And you could say, well, maybe part of it is because it's been a long day for Jesus. And he started back in verse 1 teaching, and he's pouring out his life to the people, and, you know, he's worn out. It's like the Sunday afternoon nap. He's kicked out on the cushion, dead asleep. Don't you think there's more to it than that? Don't you think that there's something deeper, that there's a deep confidence in God like the farmer from the parable of the farmer we saw last week, the farmer plants the seeds, and then he goes to sleep night and day, and then it comes up for a harvest. I think that's Jesus. He knows that God is in complete and sovereign control. He's like David in Psalm 4. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Jesus is perfectly calm, content, at peace in that boat, even though everything around him was falling apart. Disciples look at him, and they're not drawing some wonderful lesson, though, about God's control and Jesus' peace. They're really angry. They're, they're bailing water as fast as they can, and every moment that Jesus stays asleep, they are one step closer to death. And so they come to him with this accusatory question. Teacher, don't you care that we're about to drown? It's literally, is it of no concern to you that we're about to drown? which to me has like a dignified ring to it, like when your mom uses your middle name because she's getting on to you. You know, you're in real big trouble if you know that. Well, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? And it's easy for us to look at that question and with a space of a couple thousand years and living on this side of the resurrection and seeing their lack of faith and sort of being thankful that we're not like those crazy disciples. But, you know, at the same time, we ought to be honest that they were experienced sailors facing an all-hands-on-deck situation. Now, if Jesus isn't going to call down God's comfort and peace, the least he could do is pick up a bucket and help them bail the water. You know, grab an oar and help us get back to shore. So they were, they were really hanging on by a thread, and every second that the teachers stayed in the bed, they were one man down from the ideal team. They felt like him sleeping meant they were, he was unconcerned for their well-being. 
I think this is for us where storms become difficult because God's inaction almost always gets interpreted as his lack of concern. Like, for example, when you're praying real hard for God to open up a a new door to get out of this storm and his timing doesn't quite match up with you, don't you feel like, hey, where are you, God? I've said I was going to live my life for you. I'm trying to raise these kids right. What are you thinking? Where are you? I mean, sometimes we feel like the psalmist who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, it's, we can be honest. You felt that way. David says in Psalm 6, my soul's greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? How long are you going to stay asleep, teacher? Is it of no concern to you that we're drowning? Now, these are the familiar prayers of desperate people who can't shake the sense that God's abandoned them. Like, where are you? Why are you not concerned about me? So, I need to be careful when I judge the disciples for their lack of faith, because I've been here before. And thankfully, God is apparently big enough to handle those kinds of prayers and accusations. I mean, when Jesus woke up, you know, imagine getting woken up to your 12 disciples accusing you of not caring about them. I mean, did they not know that his whole purpose in life was to come and live a sinless life and die on the cross so they could be saved and live with God forever? I mean, you want to talk about me caring for you? You know, that's how I would have been if I had woken up like that. But not Jesus. Instead, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't come down on them. He just stands up, takes the situation in, and then speaks the words that brings the calm. I mean, because of that, it's really counterintuitive. But you'd rather have Jesus asleep in your boat than not, you know? He was right where he wanted to be, and he was right where they needed him to be. The old preacher said the disciples were safer in the boat with Jesus in the storm than they would have been if they were on the shore without him, right? That's the point. Jesus was with them, and his timing may not have been their timing, and his response to the storm might not have been their response, But at least he was with them. Because he was with them, when he woke up, he made all the difference. I think that's the way God always works. I think about the Israelites in the Old Testament, wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, following the presence of God. When he moved in the cloud, they followed. When he moved in the fire, they followed. And wherever God was, they went. And then God gave them everything they needed. Gave them food, gave them water, gave them protection and provision. He blessed them when they took the land. I think about the Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, and because of that, get thrown into a fiery furnace. When Nebuchadnezzar bends over and looks in to see the guys burning up, he doesn't see three guys, he sees four. The God's there with him in the fire. I think of the psalmist who declares confidently, as for me, the nearness of God is my good, and I've made the Lord my refuge. Listen, today you may be living through the scariest storm you've ever been in in your entire life. Maybe today what you're facing makes everything else look small. But have you heard it? You can trust Jesus through even this storm because he's with you in it. Listen to these words. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Do not fear, for I am 
with you. Listen, Christian, this is God's promise to you. He can't fail in the purpose that he's begun in you. He's promised to bring it to completion. So write it on your mirror. Do not fear, for I'm with you. Commit it to your memory. Make it your daily declaration. Listen to this one. Psalm 46, Mike read it for us earlier. Can you say it? God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, though everybody's against me, though I can't figure this family thing out, though my job is miserable. Right? You insert your storm in the blank. Even though all this, I will not fear. I've made God my refuge and my strength because he's a very present help for me in times of trouble. Listen, I learn. I'd love to learn about Jesus' presence from a book. I'd love to learn it in a Sunday school class. You know, the three realities of Christ's presence. And just download those principles into your heart and everything's better. But unfortunately, it looks like you got to learn about Jesus' presence by going through the storm. And could it be that the scary storm you're in is because he's brought you here to draw you closer to him than you've ever been and really teach you what it means to believe and trust that he's with you. So you can trust him in the storm because he's with you. But you can also trust Jesus through life storms because he's powerful over them. And we can look again at what Jesus did when he woke up in verse 39. Mark tells us, He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Isn't that just an amazing thing? That a man with human skin and bones like ours could stand up in front of an angry sea and speak words and cause it to become calm. That's a, it's a familiar story. You've been around church very long. You've heard it probably dozens of times. You know it. It's a cliche sort of picture. Peace be still. And yet, this is really groundbreaking stuff. One writer said that if Jesus' miracles in Mark 1, 2, and 3 sort of spark an awareness that maybe he's more than just a man, that maybe he's God, then these words right here and the response of the sea fan those sparks into flame. This isn't just any old man. This must be God. I mean, the disciples even look at each other in verse 41 there. They're terrified. Who even is this that the winds and waves obey him? So they're Bible-believing Jews. They were intimately familiar with their Old Testament. And so they knew that the creation really only answers to one person, namely the creator. They knew what the psalmist said in Psalm 107, that the sailors had cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses, that he caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. They'd memorized, I'm sure, the early poems of Genesis about God's creation. And he parted the waters and let dry land appear. They knew what God had told Job out of the whirlwind, that I have set the boundaries for the sea so that no one can move them. They knew that God is the one who triumphs over the sea. And who is this man? that even the winds and the waves obey him. I mean, Jesus' simple rebuke 
of the sea, just like he rebukes demons and just like he rebukes sickness, is an effortless authority that really only belongs to God. I mean, it's such a clear demonstration of Christ's power that you got to think for these disciples that everything from that moment forward was going to be different. They knew something about Jesus that before they didn't, and now they do, and everything's changed. But at the same time, you got to wonder why it took them so long to realize. I mean, he even asks them, why are you afraid? Do you not have faith? You know, they're accusing him that they don't care, and like he turns the tables. He's like, well, if you guys are really aware of the situation, why aren't you full of faith? The word he uses for fear is not the word he uses in, in, that Mark uses in verse 41. Verse 41 is the Greek word phobos. We get our word phobia from it. And it can mean like, you know, terror, or it can mean the reverential fear that's appropriate toward a person who's greater than you, like God. But the word that Jesus has used in verse 40 means to have a lack of confidence, to be a coward, or to be timid. I think Jesus' question is, hey, you guys have been with me this long already. You already have enough information to just ask me to do something, and I could have done it. Don't you have faith? But you see, I think the major difference here is that while the disciples had witnessed Jesus' authority and power on behalf of other people, like lepers and demon-possessed people and mothers-in-laws who have fevers and can't get up out of bed, all this stuff, they've seen it done for other people. But at this point in Mark's gospel, they've never personally experienced it for themselves. And y'all know that's a big difference. To go from the third person to the first person is really huge. I mean, there's a big difference in knowing that God provides to personally experiencing God's unexpected provision in your life. Everybody knows, right, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. We know that that is who God is. He is able to provide. But when you're really just hanging on by a thread and you're crying out to God, God, you're going to have to come through here and provide what we need. And then he does it. Your knowledge of God changes. It's a, it's a totally different thing. It's from pra- theoretical knowledge to practical knowledge, abstract to concrete. It's one thing to know that God answers prayers. Oh, yeah, God does that kind of thing for people. It's another thing to be able to stand up in front of a group of friends and say, let me tell you what God did for me, that we were praying, and he heard our prayer, and he answered. It goes from the abstract to the concrete. It's one thing to know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that Jesus died for some sinners somewhere. This is another thing to be able to say with Paul, I'm the chief of sinners, to know that he lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death, not for somebody's sins, but for me. He died for me. It's another thing. It's one thing to believe that the Lord's Supper, we're going to celebrate in a minute, is a reminder of Christ's death. It's another thing to hear his words, this is my body for you. You ever thought about that? For you. That's a personal declaration from Jesus Christ to you that his body was broken for you. Do you believe that firsthand? Has your knowledge of God's power stayed up here in the abstract principles, theology, doctrine? Or are you gripping tightly to it? Are you holding on to it? 
You know, that's what this is all about. Jesus had to bring these guys through the storm so they could experience for themselves his power. The writers of Scripture are honest about this, that this is often the way God has to teach us. He has to teach us the hard way. They call these teaching moments trials. Everywhere through the New Testament, they're over and over. God brings us into these things or turns situations into them to test us, test our faith. Right? James says in James chapter 1 that we should count it joy when we face trials or when we face storms because we know that they produce endurance, which in the end trains us to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That every storm we go through and experience God's provision for us sort of builds into us a deeper confidence and trust that's preparing us for whatever's coming next. Peter says we're like gold that's put into fire and melted down so that the dross can be removed, so that the end result of our faith is more pure than it was before the storm. That's the way God teaches us. He brings us through these things. Because of that, I feel completely confident in telling you that no storm you ever face will be wasted. None of them. But our sovereign and powerful God is even able to take the worst that you can imagine and turn it around for your good to accomplish in you more than you could ask or think. God is personally invested in teaching you just how much he loves you, just how powerful he is for you, just how much he cares for you and how present he is with you. And he'll even use hard stuff to teach you. And so church, this morning, I hope you see that you can trust Jesus through life storms because he's present with you in every last one of them and he's powerful over them all. So as we close this morning, Mike and the band are going to come and they're going to prepare to lead us in another song. But I'd like for you to think about a couple of questions before we go. You can do it looking at me or bowing your head, whichever makes you more comfortable. But the first one is this. Have you ever come into a place in your life where your knowledge of Jesus' death has gone from the abstract to the concrete, from the third person to the first person? What I mean by that is, have you ever come to the place where you recognize that you are a sinner, that Christ is God's answer to human sin, and so you confess your sin to him, and you express your faith in him, and you trusted him to save you? Have you ever done that? That's the most important lesson anyone can learn about Jesus. Not just that he's a savior for somebody, but that he wants to save you. He wants to save you from your sin and brokenness and set you free to live a life that's pleasing to him. And if you haven't done that, today is the day that you should. Now, the Bible is clear that all people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that in Christ, God put forth an atoning sacrifice that perfectly pays for sins for anyone who will receive him. Because of that, Paul says in Romans 10 that anybody who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That's his promise to you. The promise isn't that he's going to remove all of life's storms. He's going to make everything great and peachy and clear skies and smooth sailing. But his promise is that those who have been justified by faith in Christ have peace with God. 
When you live in peace with God, you'll live in peace through whatever storm you face. So if you've never done it, today's the day. Maybe you want to pray a prayer. God, you know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus came to save me. Save me and help me live for him. Maybe you've prayed a prayer like that before and you need to make it public like Gracie did today. Get baptized. Where are you, Gracie? Okay, well, that happens from time to time, as you well know. So maybe you need to make it public and get baptized. Make a, make a public declaration. Maybe you need to grab your mom, your dad, your friend, your husband, your wife, and say, hey, look, today's the day. I think I've got to go from the theoretical to the practical. I've got to make Jesus my Savior. Second, I wonder, are you in a storm right now? Are you walking through a storm right now? You're facing a scary and uncertain future. You know, God knows you're in a storm, and it's likely that the people who are sitting near you know you're in a storm too. So it'd do well for your soul to admit it. Say, you know what I'm going through right now isn't just one of those hiccups in life. It's not just one of those things that happens. I'm going through something pretty difficult and tough, and it's requiring more of me than I've got to give. I'm not able to bail water fast enough. I'm not going to be able to get through this thing. What I need is I need the very real presence of Christ with me in it, and I need to know his power over it. And so I would encourage you today to do that, to take your fear and your worry, your unbelief, your timidity, and give it to him and ask him, to work in you, to build in you faith that you've never had before. Maybe you need to say to him something like this, Jesus, I believe you're with me, and you're bigger and stronger than everything I'm facing right now in this moment. Could you verbalize that in your own way this morning? Just say, could you grab a friend and say, hey, I'm going through something right now. Maybe I don't need to go into the details of it, but hey, I'm going through something that it just would really mean a lot to me if you would pray with me, that God would be present with me in my storm, and he would be powerful over it. Maybe you want our prayer team to pray with you. You'd like people in your church to know what you're going through so they can hold you up, stand with you, and bring you before the throne of God every day. There are people in this church who would be willing to fight with you and fight for you in prayer. And sure, my last question is, who do you know that needs to hear about the presence and power of Christ for them in their storm? I got people in my life that I love so much who are facing really scary things. My heart breaks for them. Do you have people like that? People that you just, you just feel for them because of what they're going through. This week, will you commit to encouraging them? You don't have to preach at them. Just shoot them a text message. Hey, I'm praying for you. I know you're really going through it. God's got this. Something like that to let them know you're with them. Do you have their name in your mind right now? Let's pray for them.